I wonder what, yeah, you can have a seat. I wonder what the Lord's going to do with that prayer. That's what I found myself wondering as we finished that song. I mean, we just said to the Lord, I surrender all. Use me. Use my resources. Use my gifts. Use my life for your kingdom. I surrender all. I wonder what the Lord is going to do with that prayer. That's an exciting thought for me. Um, we're, in, we're in Acts. We just began a couple of months ago a sermon series on the good news of the kingdom of God. And the church has just been filled with the Spirit and sent out by Jesus to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And we, we started last week sort of a series within a series on resources in the kingdom of God and Christians and the ha- handling of our, of our finances. And I said that last week was going to be about generosity in the kingdom, this week about integrity and giving, next week about tithing, what is it, do we still do it? Um, and then the third week about ch- or fourth week about cheerful, faith-filled giving. And so last week we saw that the ch- this church, the, the big thing was they were one in heart and mind. And just this incredible unity in the church. And we saw that people were selling houses and selling land and giving it away to meet needs. And we heard the Lord said to us, don't focus on that. Don't focus on trying to reproduce that kind of generosity. Focus on where was that coming from. And that was coming from being filled with the Spirit, being filled with Jesus, and living the life that Jesus lived. So when Jesus fills you with his Spirit, then he makes you generous because he's a generous God. Right? And so this week we're going to talk about integrity in giving. But I need to tell you before we enter this sermon, I'm really only going to touch on finances or resources a little bit in terms of the application because as I made my way into the text that's not the central theme of the text and I've got to preach what the word says and so let's open to Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 it's on 1697 okay thanks Vic I'm going to actually start two verses earlier, um, 4 verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? 
What made you think of doing such a thing? Or another translation is, what made you contrive? Why did you contrive such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The word of God. This is the passage that everybody loves to hear. And the preacher loves to preach. Um, it's intimidating to listen to and to begin to think about preaching. But as I spent time with this word, I just was um, filled with gratitude. Uh, so I'm excited to share that with you. I want to start by telling you about something that um, I heard or experienced over the last couple of weeks. I had the unfortunate experience of having my master cylinder break on my truck. And I had it at, over at Jack's Service Center to get fixed and got into conversation with Jack while I was there, who's a believer, just a wonderful man. And in that conversation, Jack said to me, you know, you wouldn't believe it, Dave, but it happens quite irregularly that we get somebody in here who needs to have their entire brake system completely redone because they put the wrong fluid in the brake reservoir container. And he said, did you know if you put the wrong fluid in, like brake fluid interacts with the seals and the things in the system one way, but other fluids actually will expand and cause them to break. And so it, it will just, if you put the wrong fluid in there, it'll destroy your entire brake system. Thousands and thousands of dollars because you've got to replace it all the way down, right down to the, to the, to the ends of the system. Crazy, huh? It, it's kind of like if you go to bake a cake and you mistake your four cups of sugar for four cups of uh, white salt. Like if you go to put that cake in the oven, I don't think it's going to bake. Is it going to bake, Vic? I'm not a, I'm not a cook. But it, let's just pretend it did bake, and that cake came out of the oven, and you took a bite of it, Elaine. Your gag reflex is going to go off pretty quickly, isn't it? So we can see if you put the wrong thing, the wrong ingredient where it doesn't belong, it's a disaster. It's a train wreck. And I want to submit to you that there's a little bit of that happening this morning. Um, if we remind ourselves what's happened here, the big picture is that we've got a new creation begun. The Bible tells us Jesus is the first fruits, the beginning. First fruits means the beginning. When you get a crop, the first thing that comes is the first fruits. Jesus Christ 
fully human, fully God, is the first fruits of a new creation. God's starting over with a human family. And the body of Jesus, the church, is that new creation. And so in our last um, reading last week, we saw this beautiful picture of this body of Jesus filled with his spirit. Unity in the church. Generosity, like living lives of love that look like God. It's like the, the recipe is just beautiful because it's Jesus. And here comes Satan trying to inject something into the body of Jesus Christ that doesn't belong there. And so without giving him any or not one ounce of glory, let's remind ourselves that he's cunning, that he's smart. And so like the Greeks of old, this is the picture that I've got, like the Greeks of old who went to the city of Troy and for 10 years, the story says, besieged the city and couldn't get in. And what did they do? They made a Trojan horse and left it like an offering and went away and hid. And in the night, they came and they took the Trojan horse in and boom, inside, all of a sudden, Troy's gone. This is what Satan's trying to do to the church right here. Can't get him with a full frontal assault. Can't get him by pressing down hard on him. Can't get him by saying, stop speaking about Jesus. That's what's happened so far. The leaders have said, stop speaking in this name. Has it worked? Uh Uh-uh. We cannot help but speak. Judge for yourselves whether we ought to fear God or fear you. We will not stop speaking. And the church keeps growing. And the word says that the apostles are testifying with grace. There's many signs, many wonders. There's unity. Full frontal assault is not working. And so we're going to try another tactic. We're going to try really subtly plant something inside that church that isn't consistent with the DNA of the kingdom of God or with the character of God. We're going to try and plant deceit. Luke writes, with his wife's full knowledge So when I first started reading this text, I thought, um, we all do this in a little bit. We all, in, in a way, we all posture. We all try to look better or different than we are. And there's ways in which we don't disclose the full truth. But the more that I sat with this, the more I began to see this isn't just posturing. This isn't just not showing a little bit. This is full frontal intentional deceit with his wife's full knowledge it says he held it back for himself and then brought it and presented it as though it was the entirety of the the um, the price that they got for the land let me make clear right away this has nothing to do with the uh, the price or the money this has nothing to do with not being generous enough This is not God disciplining Ananias and Sapphira for not laying their all on the altar or giving everything they had. There's nothing that Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? It was yours. You're free. You know what? After after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It has nothing to do with are they giving God enough and everything to do with you are trying to deceive. And why is that so bad? 
Because when you deceive intentionally, you are coming into agreement with the character of Satan. The Bible calls him the father of lies. Jesus says to the Pharisees, when you speak, you lie. And when you lie, you speak your father's native language. He is a liar and has always been lying from the beginning. So when we deceive, or when we allow deceit to come in, which is what Ananias and Sapphira did, he says, how did Satan so fill your heart? Okay. When we enter deception or deception enters us in any way, what's happening is we are coming into agreement with the kingdom of darkness and with the character of Satan, which is an exact opposite with what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he's the spirit of truth. He says in John 16, after I live, after I leave you, the Holy Spirit will come. He'll be a comforter. He'll guide you. He will, he will guide you into righteousness. He'll remind you of the things that I've said. And he will convict the world with regard to sin, righteousness, what's right and what's wrong, and with regard to truth. He's a spirit of truth. And so somehow, this doesn't tell us how, but somehow or another, Ananias and Sapphira give ground. And I want to just pause here and, and I want to acknowledge that there is some mystery here. We don't know if they're genuine believers. We don't know that or not. And I want to, I want to say at the same time that God's judgment or his discipline right here is not his ultimate judgment. Okay? We don't know when they stand before God whether there's repentance in their heart. We don't know that. There's some mystery here. But God's exercising judgment right here on these actions. Okay? And I want to just settle into a, a question that Peter asked for a quick second. Because P, Peter asks, he says to them, What? What made you think of doing such a thing? And I sat with that for a while and I thought, you know what? We need to acknowledge this tension of the fact that, so I've just talked a lot about deceit, but they're actually laying a huge amount of money at the apostles' feet, right? So there's some generosity or some willingness to give partnered right beside that. We, we, we like things black and white. But they're laying down a large chunk of money. So I said to myself, why would they go through this process of selling something they own, and they're keeping back a bit, but they're giving a huge amount of money to the church, and then there's some deceit happening. Why would they do that? And that's why I read this little bit about Barnabas first. Barnabas um, selling his property and giving it. Because here's what I think happened. It could have been... Because this sometimes happened. It could have been, oh, I want to give money because it will provide me a voice or some, some control. That happens. People use their money to try and leverage control. But I don't think it was that. What I think it was was, let's pretend Billy's Barnabas, okay? So Billy lays down this big gift at the, at, at the apostles' feet. We'll, just, we'll say it's the church elders. And the church elders say, Billy, this is incredible. We just praise God 
for your generosity. We just see him working through you, and um, we've got all these needs we've been praying for to meet, and here you are, given this gift, and Billy, we just are so thankful. And can't you see how good it feels to receive that encouragement that Billy's getting right now? He's, I mean, it's God, but it's God working through him, and he's getting built up and encouraged, and it's happening in front of everybody. And so Barnabas is just being held up as this model citizen in the kingdom of God, Thank you, God, for Barnabases who just are so generous. And here's Ananias and Sapphira going, boy, I'd like to be that. Like, I'd like to have some of that, that affirmation, some of that encouragement, some of that praise, some of that. And so maybe, maybe it's the case that they really did want to give. And yet there's this deficit within them, within their heart. Um feeling like they need they need affirmation they maybe that maybe they want to appear spiritual have you ever had it where you um, wanted you looked at somebody else and you thought that person's really spiritual that person really loves the lord or that person you really look up to them right i wish i was like that person maybe there's a little bit of that going on here i want to be like so and so and um I'm not going to spend much more time here, but I just want to say that this point's really important and we're, because we're going, to, we're going to hit on it again and again and again as we go through Acts and later on begin to look at the spiritual gifts. This is why when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthian church and um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, he writes all about the spiritual gifts. He's got this chapter on the ways that God supernaturally manifests his presence through us. I mean, he gives us his Holy Spirit, he gives gifts, there's power, and uh, people are speaking in tongues, people are getting revelation, wisdom, prophecy, words of knowledge, things they couldn't know on their own. God's shown himself powerful, and Paul has to stop in the middle, and what does he say to the church? Let me show you the most excellent way. And, he, and you all know that chapter on love. If I can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. If I can prophesy and move mountains, if I stand up here and tell you the secrets of your heart, if I tell you what sins you committed this week, if I tell you what your dreams or desires are, but I don't have love, I've got nothing. Paul draws the church back over and over and over to the love of God that fills, that gives identity, that is our all in all. Because our human temptation is always to look to something other than God and to look to things and to people and to people's opinions and to want to, 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 want to receive affirmation that only God is designed to give us. And so I just wonder to myself, if that's happening here. So we don't have the answer, but what we see is somebody who's been tempted in some way, and then the shocking statement, Satan's gotten into your heart. Now, do do I think it's the actual being Satan? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I don't think it is. I think what it means is it's a a way of saying, you've allowed some things to grow up in you, some thoughts to be planted, you've believed them, You've started to act on him that are from, they're not from God. You've given a foothold within you through the things that you believed and the things that you've done. And so Satan's got a grip. 
And so he's got a grip and he's working in and through Ananias and Sapphira. And could you imagine what happens if this comes in? Here's this money sitting at Peter's feet. Here's this church, one in heart and mind. One. Now what, what happens if Peter takes the gift? What happens if the secret doesn't get exposed? Well, right now we don't have to worry about it because we see something, and that something is the Holy Spirit giving Peter supernatural knowledge. Words, so I just referenced 1 Corinthians. One of the gifts of the Spirit is called words of knowledge. You understand or you know something that you wouldn't otherwise know except that God revealed it to you. So here is Ananias in front of Peter. And uh, I'm just going to, I don't know how Peter perceived this, but I'll just tell you how I would perceive it. Because as I learned to listen to the Lord, when I get an unsettled feeling in my spirit, I might not know with my mind that something's wrong, but I don't have peace in my spirit. I can look at somebody and say something's off. I don't know what it is, but there's something off. And so I'm just surmising that Peter sensed something was off. And what, Lord? And just this word of knowledge. He's being deceitful. And so he's got discernment. And he exercises that discernment. And he acts boldly on that discernment. And I want to say to you, this is why we need leadership in the church that embodies the kingdom of God. Because this is no small test for Peter. This is no gimme. It's no automatic that he's going to say this. You've got a bunch of money placed at your feet. That is a huge temptation. Oh, the church needs money. Oh, we can use money. We've got lots of people that need money, right? But in the taking of the money, are we going to partner with something that's not of God? Are we going to accept and put our blessing on and say yes to and touch and agree with and bring our life into agreement with something that's not of God. And Peter won't do it. And praise God that Peter won't do it. And so he doesn't do it. And he says what he says. And Ananias drops dead. And that makes us really uncomfortable. Because not a person in here, including me, hasn't lied. What do we do with this? And what do we do with the fact that Scripture says over and over that the core of God's character is that he is slow to anger. He is abounding or overflowing in compassion. That means he understands our weakness. And in the gospel, we see him coming to us and offering his life for us. The Bible says, while we're still dead in our sins. So all of that's true about God's character. And so what do we do with this? Here's what I think. This past week, I was reading... Um, Exodus and Leviticus, the second and third books in the Bible, for something else that I'm doing, and um, and I, I was I read a large chunk, and 
many of you will know that God, when he begins to work with this fallen world, chooses Abram and from him, his descendants, and says, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless the world through you. That becomes the people of Israel. They're in Egypt in slavery, and God draws them out, and he meets them in the desert, and he meets them at Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, this is how you're to live, to love God with all your heart and to love each other. He gives these Ten Commands. That's at Exodus 20, 19-20. And, and then listen to this. For the next 20 chapters of Exodus, 20 chapters, God gives these detailed instructions about how they're to worship him and how they're to build a tabernacle or a temple and what worship is to look like and how the priests are to lead that worship. And then at the end of Exodus 40, God puts his presence in that tabernacle. Nowhere else on earth, but in there. Okay? And then the next nine chapters of Leviticus are all about how these people are supposed to bring offerings to God and the priests are supposed to lead. What's God doing in this? He's showing how he's not like the gods of this world. He's the creator of all things. And he's not to be treated like he can be manipulated. Okay? He needs to be obeyed. And we need to learn reverence or respect. So listen to this. 29 chapters of Exodus and Leviticus designed to show how to worship and how to lead in worship. And then you reach Leviticus 10. And it says that the priest Aaron's sons took their censers and they offered unauthorized fire. In other words, they directly disobeyed God and he burned them to a crisp as judgment. And I think of that story when I think of Ananias and Sapphira because both of these stories are right at sort of the beginning of God's work with us as a human family, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, right where there is this group of people who are beginning to get to know who is, who is the God that's meeting them and drawing them out and redeeming them from from slavery in Egypt and redeeming them from sin. Who is the God that saved us? Who is the God that we are serving, that we've been called into relationship with? And there's this necessity to know that he's a holy God. That he won't be trifled with or made sport of or easily disobeyed. That he won't put up with deceit. God is perfect. He's pure. He's holy. And in him there is no sin. And he just put his Holy Spirit in these believers. Triune God just put His Holy Spirit in these believers. There is no greater honor that you could ever, ever, ever be given. If you call yourself a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ in love and faith and obedience, God 
gives you his spirit, puts himself in you. There is no greater honor. No human being can give you any honor that will ever come remotely close. God putting his spirit in you. And so God wants to protect you and I, and he wants to protect his church. And so God, I believe God exercising judgment on Ananias and Sapphira's deceit is God showing I'm going to protect, I'm going to teach, I'm going to equip you as my body to continue to be the light of the world. Because Jesus said, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out. I don't know how salt loses saltiness, but I know that the church can lose holiness. And if the church loses holiness, and if the church begins to look like the world and like the character of Satan, then the church is no longer light. Then the church does not have anything to offer to the world. And so God is protecting his body, the body of Jesus. He will not put up with deceit in any kind. And I want us to notice something really, really joyful. We're going to get a little tiny bit of sneak peek. The next text. I'm not going to preach it now. Great fear equals great fruit. Great reverence, great fear equals great fruit. If we take the name of God and don't show fear of God or reverence for him, if we don't show that he is to be obeyed, this gospel comes at the, the um, cost of his life and he expects our lives. I surrender all. And that means I don't live self-centered anymore. It doesn't matter that I want to have sex outside of marriage. You said it's wrong. It doesn't matter that I want to spend my money this way. You said that I'm to honor you with my resources. It doesn't matter that I want this. You say, and I revere you, and I obey you. And the moment I stop showing regard or reverence for you, I've got to start wondering, whether I'm a Christian. Because the Holy Spirit produces hunger and thirst for righteousness. So this is how you can know that the Spirit of God lives within you. You want to live God's way. You're hungry for it. You're thirsty to please God. You're thirsty. It doesn't mean you're perfect. There's there's lots of Room for growth, right? This is grace space. God's continually pointing out to us areas of growth, but when God points them out, you say, yes, Lord. Lord, take away my selfishness. Lord, change my heart. Lord, help me deal with lust. Lord, this. Lord, when God points it out, so let me give you an example. I was thinking about, I was praying, Lord, show me if any of this lives in me. 
Show me if there's any foothold in me. Show me areas of my life where, I, where maybe I've struggled with this. And the Lord brought back to my mind something that happened three years ago. Pastor Gina and I were out in Vancouver to teach Growing the Church in the Power of the Holy Spirit. We're getting ready for the conference, and we're having a conversation. She asked me something, and I answered her. And as the answer was coming out of my mouth, I realized this is not true, what I'm saying. And so I just said to her, this is not true, what I just said to you. It's not true. And then I had to turn around and I say, now, where did that come from? And I realized I was posturing, wanting to appear better than, well, I don't remember what the topic was, so, but ju- I just wanted to appear better than I, than I really was in whatever area it was, and it was not true. Okay? So what's the difference between that and this text? First of all, that wasn't intentional. It wasn't premeditated. And second of all, there's an awareness right away. There's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that follows that when, that, when you sense that conviction, that's God's Holy Spirit rising something up within you and saying, uh, calling you, come to me, calling you, calling you. And so we respond, just like you're hearing, some of you are hearing God right now. He's bringing things to, to, the, to the surface where you're, you're recognizing, boy, there's this area, or there's this thing that I've not been honest with God about. I've not... I've not surrendered. I have not walked in obedience. I've kept it in the secret or I've kept it in the dark or I've, I've, I, I've not allowed God to make me holy in this area. And I, I, it's wrong. And you're hearing God speaking. God's saying, okay, right now then, you respond to me. So I'm going to close with a really brief application of a, cu- a couple of things and then we're going to move into a song where we're, we're, going to, we're going to respond. We're going to be singing, God, um, make me. Righteous and holy. That's what I want. But I want to just close by saying this as well. Coming back to finances. That um, what is true of all areas of the Christian life is true finances. That God expects us to walk in the light. So complete transparency. So that means no pretending that our financial situation is different than it is. This isn't just for giving. This is for receiving. It's for all things. No pretending. Complete transparency. Second thing, I think you've heard this really clearly, that there is no room for deceit anywhere in Christ's body. No pretending, no lying, no covering up, no deceit. God won't deal with it. Last I think that we can see here that we ought to expect attempts, and this is really for us as a, it's for us as individuals, but it's for us as a whole church family as well. We ought to expect attempts of Satan to sow things into the body of Christ that don't belong. So we have a there's a DNA to the kingdom of God. There's a DNA to Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit, and we ought to know what that is. And we ought to be able to recognize in spot, that's not from God. That's the gift of discernment. But that, what that requires of us is that we're all growing to maturity. This is why Paul says that leaders are given in Ephesians 4 to the body of Christ to build them up to maturity so that we're no longer tossed back and forth like waves on the sea. Because if you don't know the character of God and if you don't know the word of God, then you get easily swayed, pushed. This way, tricked, deceived, led into sin. Stuff can grow up in your heart and you don't know the word of God and so you can't even notice it. You don't notice it. Okay? So, as individual believers and as a church, 
We ought to expect that the enemy of our soul, who the Bible says aims to steal, to kill, and destroy, will attempt to sow things into our lives and our hearts. This is why we guard our hearts. Above all else, the Bible says, guard your heart. It's where life comes from. And we say no with Peter. We say no. So when temptation comes, we say no. We don't entertain it for a minute. No. Okay? Let's just stop there. Let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And um, Lindsay, would you just come up and, and lead us? And um, we're going to pray and sing in response. Lord Jesus, your word says no temptation has seized you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out from underneath it. God, we acknowledge that we have been tempted in many different ways and that some of us have given into those temptations. And um, we do not want to care about or cater to human approval. We don't want to fear human beings. Lord, we want to reverence you alone. You are loving. You've paid the price to cleanse us of our sins. You are gracious. And you say to us, be holy as I am holy. And so, Lord, we want to respond to you right now. And we want to say, make us holy. And God, we pray that even as we're singing, you would highlight um, areas of our hearts and our lives that aren't holy. Because joy, holiness brings joy. It's joy to be like you, O oh Lord. And so we just pray, Lord, for just a mixture of repentance and refreshing that your word promises comes as we turn to you and as we hunger and we thirst for your ways. So come, Holy Spirit, and work among us as we sing and we pray.